It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy and I lead Economist Radio. On the menu this week, a kerfuffle over Cypriot cheese, why demand for beef in France is getting rarer and Britons lose their taste for a tipple. But first, when the drugs don't work, was our cover line this week. The evolution of antibiotic resistance is making many medical problems worse and this pernicious threat is growing. We need to act now to combat the unseen aggressor, as our cover leader explained. Unfortunately, fit microbes mean unfit human beings. Drug resistance is not only one of the clearest examples of evolution in action, it is also the one with the biggest immediate human cost. And it's getting worse. Stretching today's trends out to 2050, the 700,000 deaths could reach 10 million. One of the problems is that the costs are not seen by those responsible. You keep cattle? Add antibiotics to their feed to enhance growth. The cost, in terms of increased resistance, is borne by society as a whole. You have a sore throat? Take antibiotics in case it is bacterial. If it is viral and hence untreatable by drugs, no harm done. Except to someone else who later catches a resistant infection. Unfortunately, changing people's behaviour post-prescription is a challenge in itself. Patients suffer no immediate harm when they neglect to complete drug courses after their symptoms have cleared up, leaving the most drug-resistant bugs alive. Indeed, one of the treatments needed is a widespread dose of medicinal education. Because many people mistakenly believe that human beings, not bacteria, develop resistance, they do not realise that they are doing anything wrong. Our cover leader prescribed some healthy advice for overcoming the subtle enemy, which you can read at economist.com. And if you'd like to hear more in audio on antibiotic resistance, tune into our science and technology podcast, Babbage. As we highlighted the pitfalls of nibbling on antibiotics, over in our Europe section, an article sunk its teeth into the market for red meat. In France, beef has long been key to national identity, yet, as an article explained, demand for the meat seems to be getting a little rarer. There is no alimentary constraint which does not make the Frenchman dream of steak, wrote Roland Barthes, a French literary theorist, in 1957. It's a meat that transcends social boundaries. Rare in a lightly charred crust, it is the... Comfortable bourgeois meal. Flat and yellow-edged, like the sole of a shoe, it forms the bachelor's bohemian snack. And with such versatility, beef enjoys a good hunk of demand. The French still tuck into more steak than any other European country, bar Denmark. They put away 25 kilograms, that's 55 pounds, of beef per head every year, the equivalent of two generously cut steaks each week, fully a third more than the British, 
whom the French have long liked to call les roses beef. But could the French be losing their taste for red meat? Today, steak consumption has gone into an unprecedented decline, as poultry sales have overtaken beef. Since 1990, beef consumption in France has dropped by 20%, while that of poultry has risen by a quarter. So, as the French push their boeuf to one side, over the Channel, Britons seem to be shunning one of their most cherished national pastimes, boozing. As an article in our Britain section explained, a fondness for alcohol trickles through the country's history, but the youth of today seem to be finally putting a stopper in it. Shakespeare wrote that nobody was as potent in potting as the English, and the British reputation for alcoholic excess has lasted into the 21st century. And it's not just anecdotes that show Britain's love of libations. In 2005, the average British adult guzzled 173 litres of alcoholic beverages per year, including 220 pints of beer and 160 medium-sized, that's 175 millilitre, glasses of wine. But the debauchery may be drying up. By 2014, that had decreased to 135 litres, a 22% fall. The sobering up has occurred in both rich and poor households, though disproportionately among the young. The youth of today, eh? Young people are more conscious of the health risks of getting plastered and under more pressure to succeed academically than their predecessors. Well, being sober can only help with that. We turn now to our business section, where a hullabaloo over halloumi has been kicking off over in Cyprus. As an article explained, the cheese is one thing the two halves of the island can agree on, even if that amicability is starting to crumble. Over the past four decades, officials negotiating an end to Europe's oldest frozen conflict, the dispute between the internationally recognised Republic of Cyprus and the self-declared Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, or TRNC, have had plenty to chew on. Yet all Cypriots can unite over one thing. Love of the salty, rubbery cheese known as halloumi in the south and helim in the north enriches the island. Last year, the Greek south exported 103 million euros. That's $116 million worth of the stuff. And the mutual love for the cheese even churned out a joint venture. Last July the two sides filed a joint application to have the cheese declared a protected designation of origin, or PDO, product by the European Union. This status would place halloumi and helim on a footing with such lauded delicacies as Parma ham, champagne and Roquefort cheese. Unfortunately, without a settlement, it's a milk and water proposition. It might allow Helim to be sold in the southern part of the island, but as Cyprus has been a member of the EU since 2004, the bloc's laws apply only in the Greek part of the island. As the Cypriot situation continues to curdle, we turn to our finance section, where an article picked apart a plight of the Pacific. Thinking of islands here should evoke images of warm weather, beach-wide strolls and cocktails, yet it seems the reality is not quite so tranquil. Most of the countries of the Pacific are poor and poorly run. Their tiny size and remoteness are obstacles enough to prosperity. Now, thanks to global warming, they must also contend with rising seas and increasingly frequent and severe storms. Try putting that on a postcard home. 
Some countries, though, benefit from natural resources. If Timor-Leste can reach an agreement with Australia on how to divide Greater Sunrise, a gas field in the Timor Sea between the two countries, then its gas will last another 15 years. If not, its known fields will be exhausted in four. Yet much of the region is filled with far-flung islands and tentative sources of income. One is tourism, though this is less developed than one might expect for an area composed of Elysian islands with pristine beaches and rainbow coral. You know where to fly to next then, dear listener. We flip through to our science section now, where we report on an intrepid journey inside the human body. As an article explained, scientists have now developed tiny robots to take a peek around inside and remove any foreign objects. It has long been a goal of some researchers to produce tiny robotic devices which are capable of travelling through the body to deliver drugs or to make repairs without the need for a single incision. And it seems that dream is within grasping distance. The basic idea is to make robots that fold up, a bit like origami, into small structures less than a few millimetres in diameter so that they can be swallowed like tablets. Out of sight, out of mind. Then, once inside the body, the capsules enclosing the robots dissolve, allowing the devices to unfold, reconfigure themselves and get to work. Science fiction, then, just without the fiction bit. The researchers tested their robot in an artificial stomach to get a battery out. In their tests, the robot was able to latch onto a button battery with its own magnet. Dragging it along, the robot could then be guided towards the intestines where it would eventually be excreted. That might be enough detail on that for now, but if you do want to find out more about this pioneering research, do take a look at this week's issue. Leaving the microscopic nanobots and their quest to rid our bodies of unwanted invasions, we move to Books and Arts, where our Johnson columnist explored a rift between two linguistic persuasions. For half a century, language experts have been divided over whether to describe the state of language or prescribe how it should be used. Yet this divide is finally closing and good sense is winning out. Over the decades, the two sides have traded insults. Prescribers are authoritarians in denial about the real world and describers are permissivists with no standards. The conflict should never have become so bitter, our columnist lamented. But both camps were ill-served by less thoughtful standard-bearers. Many clueless prescribers really did push dud rules. The ban on split infinitives, the ban on ending sentences with prepositions, the notion that since cannot mean because, and so many more. Especially since there's a sensible consensus, people can choose to very easily agree on. See what we did there. Johnson is one of those who will reserve, he literally exploded laughing, to refer to a bloody scene requiring a mop. Even though he knows many great writers have used, literally, figuratively. So mind your language, but not too much. I'm Anne McElvoy and I'm literally leaving the studio now. That was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback via email radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.